Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome back, everybody. I'm here with Pablo Burraco. Pablo Burraco, right? Yeah. Dr. Burraco is a postdoctoral fellow who is currently part of the Spanish National Research Council at Doniana Biological Station in Sevilla. But before that, you were quite around a bit. You were a postdoc in Sweden, and you also were a postdoc in Glasgow, Glasgow, mm -hmm. Scotland. And we are lucky to have him here today because he is visiting Texas State University for a short period of time. He's doing a collaboration with Dr. Gaber and with the Cyphophorus Genetics Talk Center. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you very much for this invitation. Of course. How do you define yourself? As a molecular biologist or...? Ha. I expected this question. Uh, to be honest, I don't know what is the answer. I think I'm not a proper ecologist. I'm not a proper evolutionary biologist. I guess I try to combine all of them. Um, so, you know, try to understand uh, how species evolve from a physiological point of view. Your work is so interdisciplinary that it's hard to put you in one specific category. That's why I ask. So I think that before we start discussing your research in particular, I have to ask you to explain the people what telomeres are and why they are so important. Well, telomeres now are very famous, no? Because can go even to a clinic and measure your telomeres and apparently uh, they will say how long you are going to live. Why? Well, because telomeres are the terminal regions of the chromosomes and they are very important for protecting cells during cell division and because if telomeres are very short, you can not properly replicate your cells, no? Uh, but the thing is like when we discover telomeres, we, we, we thought that they were like an indicator of chronological age because they are shortening age. But then we realized that they also shorter faster with stress, meaning that they can be an indicator of biological age, not only about chronological age. Let me explain to people a little bit that telomeres are chromosomes. It's the compacted DNA that we have within our, our cells. And the extremes of the chromosome, correct me if I'm wrong, please. The streams of the chromosomes, they are called telomeres. Yeah, sorry, because I started by the end, actually. So, yeah, chromosomes are where we have our genetic information, let's say. And at the very end, there are the telomeres. Basically, well, you know, DNA is four by four different letters. And the telomeres are repetitive sequence, meaning that we have... For example, in all the vertebrates, we have T, T, A, G, 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 many times, repeated thousands of times. So that's very simple sequence, but they are very important for cells. Why are they so important for the cells? So as I say, so they protect cells during cell division. So 
the thing is like because they can shorten with age and they can shorten depending on what happens during your life. If they become very, very short, cells cannot replicate properly and they can even induce cell apoptosis, meaning that, well, uh, you have shorter telomeres, then more of your cells uh, will die, let's say, and then your tissues at some point, they are not going to be functional anymore. So you can have like problems in some parts of the body and at the end can finally affect your lifespan or your, your you know, survival. The shorter your telomeres, the harder it is for the cell to divide and you're basically going to die. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there are like consequences from the cell, let's say. If they are very short, the cell will die at some point. If many cells die, then we'll, we'll have like systemic consequences, not like consequences for the whole organism. So if you would measure telomere length in a baby and in an old human, for example, or in an in a juvenile or an elder member of whatever species you're dealing with, would you see a shortening in the telomere? Yeah, size? so it's, it's very clear no, that there is a shortening from, from babies to all individuals. Uh, most of the shortening happens early in life because it's when we are growing. So there are more cell divisions and there are many like developmental processes happening. But then the rate of shortening is, is the most important thing. I mean... We know that telomeres shorten, but their rate is different between individuals, and that can be a good predictor of uh, the survival chances somehow. And I imagine there are many, many reasons and many, many different aspects to research regarding telomere shortening, but do we know anything about why they shorten in the first place? Why they start becoming shorter and shorter every time the cell divides? Well, uh, there are two main factors. The first one is like telomeres need one enzyme for replicating, and that enzyme is called telomerase. Mm -hmm. So basically, then that's the responsible for replicating telomeres. But the thing is like, even with that enzyme, there is like incomplete replication, meaning that after each cell division, telomeres are shorter and shorter, no? That's the first thing. So meaning that, yeah, okay, cell divide, and then you have shorter telomeres. The second is, as I say, what happens during your life. The main factor affecting that from a molecular point of view is oxidative stress. But it's also very common. I mean, you go to the shop, no, and suddenly you see one product and say, hey, this is a very powerful antioxidant. No? Mm -hmm. um, what basically happens is like, for example, if we are very stressed, we release free radicals. Mm -hmm. And those free radicals can also shorter telomeres. That's why cell division, but also what happens during your life, is very important for the dynamics of the telomeres. Do you know if these free radicals affect the telomeres themselves or they affect the telomerase, the enzyme, more? In, in principle, the, that's a very good question. Uh, I'm not very sure about the second part, but it's relatively clear, I will say, about the first, in the way that these free radicals can impact on the on the DNA sequence of the telomeres, and and they somehow start like not replicating properly and shortening in the end. Because I, the reason I ask this question is, and this is a side comment, I read a paper not long ago that, do you know that in, when, when you drink alcohol, the enzyme that breaks alcohol is called alcohol D Dehydrogenize. Thanks. Dehydrogenize. Sorry. <laughs> and there's a study that shows that as you get older, 
you produce less and less of this enzyme. So it's true that hangovers are worst. Okay. One, <laughs> like after you get older and older and older, yeah. This is a very important information for me. Right. I'm a good drinker. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, actually, it would be very nice to know what happens in terms of the telomerase and the telomeres because maybe free radicals are more important at a certain point of your life and not later. I'm also very interested on understanding like a change in all the responses to environmental stress across development, meaning that most of the studies, they, they find one result and they say, okay, this is what is happening. But come on, how old were the individuals when this happened? So I think it's very important. So, Dr. Burraco, besides being an expert in telomeres, you're also an expert in amphibians. Well, well I mean, I don't consider myself either um, a pathologist in the way that I, I love amphibians. I think that they are amazing for many studies because, you know, they undergo metamorphosis. And they are now under a very important risk of extinction. I don't know. They are very cool in many ways, no? Uh, but I'm not the typical guy that knows all the amphibian species. I go like I'm, I'm very jealous of that, spe- of that people, of those people. And uh, sometimes I suffer when I go to the field with my friends. I mean, with my college, and they are like, "Wow, this is this species," and I just shut up because I don't have anything to say. So. <laughs> <laughs> but you, but you do combine both in your work. Yeah, no, no, definitely. I mean, out of York, I have been working with amphibians from the very beginning. When I, I mean, I did my PhD with amphibians. And then I, well, I guess that we will talk about this at some point, but I was working in Chernobyl with amphibians, also in, in Glasgow. No, I mean, I I would say I use amphibians as a study system, uh, but at the same time, I really like them. So don't misunderstand my, <laughs> my words. <laughs> so your most cited article is the one that explores the different effects of accelerated accelerated development and enhanced growth on oxida- oxidative stress and telomere shortening in an amphibian larvae. So basically combining your two things, that, the, the two things that you like, telomeres and amphibians. I really like that study, first of all, because, and please correct me if I'm wrong again, you compare different variables, several variables, like fat content growth, oxidative stress, and telomere length in, in the amphibians, but in two different treatments. One treatment was the pond, so two different sources of stress. One was the pond drying, simulating what happens in nature, and the other one was the presence of predators. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit of what you find out with this study? Yeah, yeah. I think that this study is quite well cited because in the end what happens with amphibians and with many ectoderms is like they can develop and grow at a different rate, meaning that you can develop very fast, let's say. So, for example, in the case of amphibian larvae, they can uh, develop from, from larva to egg in a certain amount of time. But also you can grow at different rate. So you can reach metamorphosis like, at, I don't know, in, in a very short amount of time, and then you can be bigger, smaller, or whatever, no? And the thing is, like, playing with pond drying and predators, you can somehow, like, get a range of all these variables, so you can have, like, a range of developmental and growth rates, no? So it's basically what, what we did, no? So we we use mesocosm, 
So basically, uh, we use like big tanks of 400 liters, if I remember well. Yeah, 400 liters. Yeah. Um, and then we exposed to these treatments, so trying to simulate like natural conditions. Even we took sand from the from the ponds, uh, you know, to promote like a natural environment, also about the microbiome and everything. And then we we found, for example, that the individuals surviving to predators, they had shorter telomeres. It was surprising somehow. But then we realized that if you survive to predators, you are bigger because you have like more resources in the environment, so you can eat more. And because you are bigger, you also divide more yourselves. And in our opinion, is what is happening in this case. So you only have short telomeres because you divide more somehow. And actually, there are several studies showing something like this, that sometimes having short telomeres is not an indication of like um, uh, higher morta- mortality uh, probability, but also, but only that you somehow are bigger. So if I understood correctly, in the environment that predators were present, because predators ate some of the tadpoles, exactly, they were less densely populated. So there was more resources per individual, and so they had more food and they, they grew more. And as you say, they had a shorter, shorter telomeres after that. Do you know if this is going to affect the the lifespan once they are adults and they don't divide as much? That's an amazing question because that's that's something that um, I mean we assume many things but we don't test all of them. Of course, yeah, it's impossible. Yeah, it, we normally say okay. For example, in this case, short telomeres are going to be linked to a, a shorter lifespan. Mm-hmm. But normally in amphibians, if you are bigger, you survive more. Mm. Um. So having shorter telomeres in this case is an indicator of shorter lifespan. We really don't know because in this case we need to maintain individuals until they die. And with amphibians, this is a bit of a problem because some of these species, they survive like 10, 11, Xenopus, like 40 years. Um, so I don't want to sit yeah. down and wait until that happens. <laughs> yeah. It could be very interesting. <laughs> and there are a couple of, of things that I found curious when I, when I read this article. That it's the when you describe all the housing conditions and the experimental conditions, I found that pretty interesting. You collected the adult frogs in order to get the tadpoles. If I remember well, we collected the um, the clashes from the field. No. Ah, okay. Maybe maybe you are correcting because we did this like uh, seven or eight oh, okay. years ago. I, I was going to ask you how did you collect or how would you collect frogs? Maybe you you know even if you didn't. Yeah, do no, things. no, of course. Uh, so we normally go to the field when it's rainy. If you want individuals that, that they are breeding, so you have to go during the night, when that is when they are active, no? So when it's rainy, you go to the field, uh, and then you start looking for like couples that they are together, they are in amplexus, that is the, the, the terminal that when they are like attached, you know, the-, the Mating. Ma- yeah, they are mating, no? So the, the male is uh, behind the, the female, so, and then you collect that couple, and then you put in a, like a, I don't know, big container or whatever you have, mm-hmm. and then you wait until they... And how do you catch them? Just just with the hand. Just with the hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's okay. it. Pretty I mean, nice. you have to be careful. Of course, you don't... I mean, this is a bit stressful for, for the animals, but you try to do as fast as possible. And then once that you you catch them uh, and then you put in, a, in another container, I think that they forget that. Answer. Yeah, yeah, they're fine. <laughs> and then something that I also thought it was curious is that you feed the, tadpo- the tadpoles rabbit food. 
Yeah, well, I mean, like uh, everyone, we improve our our system, no? <laughs> so at that time, we were using rabbit show because, uh, well, it's very nutritive, and these tadpoles, well, these are spiteful tots, so they have a quite large size, so they ate that very well, and they, they grew very well. Now we are combining with um, spinach, for example, and trying also to improve the enrichment in, in, in their food, no? So not to be that simple. And finally, another thing that I, I thought it was pretty curious is when I was when I read the title, I, I scrolled immediately down to see who was going to be the predator. Uh-huh. I was like, are, are they letting snakes in <laughs> or are they, an eagle is going to come every now and then and pick one or something? But it's not. It's the, the aquatic beetle larvae. And I was like a little disappointed until I looked for a picture. Yeah. And they are super impressive. They are amazingly impressive in the way that you cannot imagine that I mean I, I suggest people listening us to go to Google and find a video of these guys um, praying because they are really good predators and you cannot imagine I mean one of these guys with the same size or even half of the size of one tadpole can eat a tadpole so they start like yeah, putting they... everything in their mouth wow they're um, fierce yeah 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 I mean I was very scared because at some point I was bite by them <laughs> and and since we're talking about predation and, and stuff, you participated in another study that was really interesting that it was about predation and contamination. Mm-hmm. In in using a different also also tadpoles and, and predators, but a different species of tadpole and a different predator. What I found really interesting, so the the whole the point of the article is that you don't need levels of contamination high enough that kills the tadpoles in order to affect their their survival because lower levels of pollution affect the way they behave around predators. Uh, yes, I mean, the thing is like how tadpoles detect predators is because predators release some cues, let's say, to the water, like some smell. So tadpoles can recognize that smell and then they respond to, to the smell. No? So basically... Uh, they decrease their activity rate, meaning that they are like super quiet, not moving at all, uh, trying not to be detected by the by the predators. And the thing is, like, if you use a toxic in the in the environment and at a very low concentrations, I mean, we are not talking about about you know crazy levels or something like that. They cannot recognize the the presence of the predators. So meaning that. Toxics are quite bad in many aspects, but also for the interaction between species in, in the environment. And is this because the, the pollutant blocks their olfactory? Yeah, we really don't know the, the molecular machinery behind that. It can be because it's interfering with uh, the actual you know cue released by the predators, or it can be because somehow they cannot smell. I mean, it can be affecting or the cue or the tadpoles, but we really don't know. But it's really it's really interesting because the result is pretty clear. When when there is pollution, they just move around freely as as if nothing happened. And when there is not, they just stay really quiet and hide. Yeah, actually, the recognition of uh, predators by tadpoles is very interesting in my opinion, because everything is about chemicals in the end. No, uh, so for example, in Spain we have a crayfish uh, that is invasive. This is a this is a funny story because they introduced in Spain like in the seventies uh, last century. And 
they were that I mean they wanted to use for for I mean for eating there, not for, for consuming for humans. Mm-hmm. But I think in one or two years they I mean the crayfish found a way to escape and they became invasive like crazily. Now they are everywhere in the south of Spain. It's the restaurant crayfish is the one that you have here in the in the States. Mm-hmm. Um and the thing is like uh, they have been there for now like fifty years, something like that. And native tadpoles living in the south of Spain, they cannot recognize the presence of this crayfish. So they have evolved to detect the the native predators, but they don't know how to respond to the invasive one. Wow. Yeah. You know, here in, in Texas, I've heard the word crayfish pronounced so many different ways. I, I heard it crawfish, crayfish, and then crawdaddies. <laughs> I wish I had a, a good Texan accent. Well, I, I hope that the listeners understand that we no, are no, no. native. <laughs> it's, just funny. it's just funny to me. <laughs> Dr. Rocco, let's do a short break and then we come back with more. Okay, thanks. Voy a poner ahora la Ahora puse esta un ratito este, como la otra. Damn. <laughs> I love this song. Amazing. Wow, what a song. So before the break, we were listening to That's Life by Frank Sinatra. And now we're listening to A Change Is Gonna Come by Sam Cooke. Wow, what a song. <laughs> I would leave it all, but <laughs> we have to talk about science. Uh-huh. Why did you pick these two amazing songs? Well, I would say for two different reasons. From uh, I mean, the Sinatra one, I would say that because we're always like worried about many things, no? but at some point, it's like, that's life. I mean, what's the point? I mean, let's just enjoy every day and that's it. No, even... I don't know. Now I'm coming directly from the lab. No, I was yesterday night. I was overwhelmed because I had a big issue with most of the samples, and today I solved the problem. So that's it. And that's life. No? So the lyrics, the lyrics get you. Yeah, exactly. And and the second one, well, because we have to do something with nowadays. I mean, what is happening? A change is going to come. No? Of course, 
uh, about black life, of course they matter, um, and I think that that song is quite linked to that. Uh, but also about what is happening in the entire world, where it's getting crazy and and doing many stupid things. I have to, I think that we need to value what we have. You did a lot of research in Chernobyl. Yeah. Why, when you publish about your research in Chernobyl, you call it Chernobyl? So we were using Chernobyl for many years, uh, but then because of the war, we realized that local people they use Chernobyl. I mean, with, with o, an o. Yeah, like a way of saying that that's the, the Ukrainian war of Chernobyl, no? Or people use Chernobyl that is more like Russian. And, and then it was just a way of supporting our college there because when we work in Chernobyl, uh, or in Chernobyl, sorry, uh, we need local people, of course, helping us in, in the field, uh, plan, planning everything because, I mean, we... we We do our best uh, before going, going there, no? but we need a lot of help. It's amazing that you're doing that to support uh, Ukraine. So one of your st uh, studies, it's a little bit interesting. It's a little bit surprising to me because you find you find that radiation does not impact as much, at least the blood physiology of, of some Chernobyl frogs. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, the thing is, like, we have conducted a lot of work in Chernobyl. We have been working there for now five years. So, I mean, we collected many data. No? And that's a good example of what we found that was, in, in general, basically nothing. I mean, we didn't find, um, like, a very um, strong effect of radiation on, in this case, on amphibians. Uh, and we still publish that because I think it's very important. Actually, you, you know very well that in science we have a bias in the way that we, we have the tendency to publish the, the positive or the significant effects in the way that we are expecting, no? because it's like more sound. Um, but then in Chernobyl, we don't we don't find very strong effects of radiation. I, I wouldn't say that the animals are, are okay, but probably it's better a bit of radiation and not having humans somehow. But how is it possible that radiation is not affecting them? Well, I think there are different factors. The first one is that the radiation levels now are quite low compared to, you know, what happened after the, the nuclear accident. The second one is like many years happened. I mean, it was like that accident was like 37 years ago, something like that, this point, 36. And meaning that um, several generations are, are coming from that point. Uh, maybe there is also migration from uh, populations of amphibians. You know, maybe after the accident, uh, no one was living there, but uh, there was a kind of colonization. And you not only work with tree frogs from Chernobyl, you also work with microbiomes? Yeah, we are now moving a bit to the microbiome part, and we were collecting samples uh, across ponds, I mean, like in environmental microbiome, to see not only if um, radiation is affecting the physiology of vertebrates, but also the microbiome living in the, in the environments, because you know that they are very important for everything. You know, having a, a good or a healthy uh, microbiome in our bodies is super important for, for our health. No? So we're collecting microbiome uh, or microbiotas in different ponds there to see if there was a, an effect of radiation. And do you see an effect? It was a little one, a bit on, on the diversity of the different microbiomes. 
Uh, and the beautiful part of this is like uh, we also collected samples from the gut microbiome of the amphibians in the same places. And we are right now working on that with the idea of like putting everything together and see if there is a correlation not only with radiation but also with the micro so somehow how the microbiome of the environment goes to the gut microbiome of the individuals and another paper that you did about chernobyl exclusion zone and chernobyl radiation is one about the evolution of tree frog populations mm -hmm. and the title is really impressive because it says unusual evolution of tree frog populations in chernobyl exclusion zone So it's like wow, like what's going on? Yeah, that, that's that's something that we have published, and I think it's it's good. I'm not very fan of the super fancy title, I have to say. I was a bit against, um, but maybe it was a a good way of catching some attention. I think well, the, the main message of that one is like we found that mutation rates are higher inside um, the Chernobyl exclusion zone, um, so meaning that maybe radiation is inducing that, no? But um, wasn't that expected? Yeah, that's that's the thing. So I wouldn't say initial evolution probably was uh, the expectation that we had. Yeah, you're right. But in in this, so when people imagine unusual evolution, they might they might think frogs had like f six legs instead of four or something. This is this is not the case, right? It's just uh, well, I was about to say unfortunately because it's, I mean it would be very cool to see that. But no, I mean when you go to Chernobyl, uh, everything is like a national park. Actually, I really like to go to Chernobyl because, well, of course, I'm not happy that it's full of radiation there. Um, but you are alone. And so you, I mean, there are not humans. Um, there are animals everywhere, foxes, wolves, birds. Um, it's amazing, no? I have so many questions. So how how is it working there? Like, first of all, you have to take a lot of protective measures. We normally don't use anything because radiation trespasses whatever you use. Uh, in the highly contaminated place we we use you know this like white dress that cover you like an overall yeah exactly it's just for avoiding uh, bringing particles with you like radioactive particles uh, but it's the only thing that we use for the rest is just I mean we don't spend a lot of time there so for example in one week in in the Chernobyl exclusion zone we accumulate the same amount of radiation that for example you go to the dentist and you get those x-rays of your mouth. So it's kind of the same, and actually it's even better, because in the dentist you get that in one second, and we accumulate in seven or ten days. So why is it still an exclusion zone then, if it's safe to be back there? Well, maybe it's not that safe. I mean, it's, it's difficult to, to respond to this in the way that, well, imagine that we find, it's not the case, eh? but imagine that we find a 5% of decrease in the time that uh, wildlife survive. Mm -hmm. Maybe for wildlife doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, for the population, it's perfectly okay, no? But if you say that to humans, so instead of living 80 years, you are going to live, I don't know, um, 75. Eh, maybe it's not recommendable, no? It makes, um, it makes sense. Yeah. And, and, and with a lot of issues at the end, maybe, or... Exactly. can be, you know, transgenerational effects, like for the kids or whatever. And that area of uh, Ukraine is quite isolated, uh, meaning that they have a lot of space. I mean, it's not like, you know, it's the middle of New York and you have to, li to live there. No? So. And when you go there, you stay in a city nearby and you drive in, or you even stay, like you sleep there. Is, is there like abandoned cities or what, what does it look like? Well, basically, you pass a checkpoint, 
And uh, so the the radio of radio of the exclusion zone is like thirty kilometers. So they have a fence around, and they have like different checkpoints. No, so we pass the main one, and then we drive like fifteen kilometers inside the exclusion zone, and we sleep in the Chernobyl town. Actually, wow, uh, there are two hostels there, because I mean it's crazy, but now Chernobyl is full of tourists. The only humans that you can see are tourists. Well, now, not now, unfortunately, but before the war. Uh, actually, the year before the war, uh, I think that up to 100,000 people visit the exclusion zone. So they pay like 60, 80 dollars, mm -hmm. and they are like one day inside. What is a lot of money because the average salary in Ukraine is like two or 300. Mm. So, yeah, so those hostels are basically for them. And we, we sleep there, and yeah, we, no, we normally have the breakfast with all the people visiting for one day. Wow. Yeah. I have to ask you, have you seen the HBO series? Yes. And what do you think about it? I think it's very accurate. Really? Yes. Uh, well, of course, I mean, it's a series for Netflix or HBO, meaning that, well, they, they try to, to make up a bit. But I think it's very well done in terms of what happened. And they also highlight the... Um, the figure of the, um, I don't remember the name now, these people that they were cleaning or washing all mm -hmm. the material they were using, liquidators. Mm -hmm. And that was very important because many people died uh, just helping not to decontaminate or, or somehow clean the area. No? So I I read reviews that it's really good. Like people, people I talk to say it's like one of the best series they've seen ever. I watched a couple of episodes and then I... I Forgot about it, I don't know. But there's a scene from one of the episodes that I saw that it's stuck on my mind that it's when the helicopter is flying and he gets too close to somewhere that he shouldn't and it just pff, disintegrates. Yeah, collapse, no? Yeah. And is that real? I, I think so. I think that happened. Actually, if you go to Wikipedia, if I remember well, uh, the number of people that died because of the nuclear accident, I mean, directly during those days, they say that it's like people uh, working the, in the nuclear power plant and some of these people that they were in the helicopter. So apparently the um, like electronic system of the, of the machine uh, couldn't work with that um, like massive amount of radiation and collapse. Wow, that's, yeah. that's crazy. Yeah. So Dr. Buraco, let's do another short break and then can you tell us what you're doing here in Texas State? And then I have a couple of questions of science okay perfect if you don't mind <laughs> so let's see what songs you chose for us
de prestado, que hoy el cielo está nublado, uno nace y luego muere, este cuento se ha acabado. Depende, depende, de qué depende, de según cómo se mire, todo depende. So before the break, we were listening to Flaca mm -hmm. uh, by Andrés Calamaro. And now we're listening to Depende by Jarabe de Palio. Uh, Andrés Calamaro is an Argentinian songwriter, which I, I know well. Why, why did you choose him? Is it big in Spain too? Well, I, I, I would say that I'm probably the biggest fan of this guy. So I, was, I discovered the music with this guy when I was like 10 years or something like that. And, and even acknowledge the I mean I, I I say that this guy was that important for me in the in my PhD. So I say, you know, thank you to my family, thank you to my friends, and thank you to Andres Calamaro. Because <laughs> I will say that eighty percent of my time writing the PhD was with this guy in the background. <laughs> that's 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 pretty good. <laughs> and and depende? Depende this uh, the 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 writer the writer of this song is called Paudone and this is Catalan guy that died like three or four years ago and he was fighting uh, a cancer for many years was very famous in Spain because the guy was always positive until the very last moment actually there is an interview they recorded like the last week of the guy still alive mm -hmm. And, and he was sending super nice message. So I fully recommend to to go to YouTube and, and find some info of this guy. All right. I will check it out for sure. Dr. Burraco, I forgot to ask you about the famous study of the different coloration in tree frogs from the Chernobyl area. Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's not viral, I would say. Uh, we published like five or six months ago that we discovered that frogs inside the Chernobyl area, they are darker than outside. And so we think that it's because of the protective role of the melanin. Um, maybe somehow only the frogs that they were darker, they survive against radiation because of the color. You say it went viral. Did you get bothered by the media a lot? Well, <laughs> I wouldn't say bothered, but I was contacted by hundreds of um, journalists. Yeah. Wow. It appeared in, well, it has been translated to more than 30 languages. Um, and yeah, at some point it got viral in the way that, you know, that when there is one title and many people, there is one sentence that people start using, you know, at some point the sentence is very dif different yeah. than it was at the beginning. No? And I think it was in the, in the song, in the newspaper, you know, that is very sensationalist in the UK. They say mutants, frogs in Chernobyl. And what well, we were not saying that at all. We just say that they are darker, and that's it. But they say mutants, like uh, you know, they are like uh, developing a super weird thing. But it's just about the coloration. Yeah. It reminds me of the classical article of the butterflies outside London after, before, and after the Industrial Revolution. Are you are you familiar with that study? Yes, more or less. Yeah. So, so let me tell the people mm -hmm. just in case. After the re the Industrial Revolution started the coloration of butterflies changed to a darker coloration. Mm -hmm. And we know this because of collections of people previous to the Industrial Revolution. Revolution. So before the revolution, the bark in the trees near the cities was lighter. And afterwards, after the revolution, with all the smoke and all the pollutants in the air, 
the, the bark in the trees became darker and therefore the butterflies that were darker were the ones that could camouflage better and those were the ones that survived, which is really... Yeah, this is a, a good example of rapid evolution. Amazing. Um, yeah, it, it happened super fast. You know that in the school they always say that the evolution is something gradual. Uh, but it's, it's hard to hard, hard to believe no, that uh, everything that we have now happened gradually. I mean, maybe in some cases, yes, but uh, it's clear that not always. Um, yeah. Dr. Burraco, what, what are you doing now here at Texas State? Well, this is a very short stay, a very short visit. Actually, shorter than I would like because I'm having a lot of fun. I'm very happy here. I'm just visiting the Shifofrus uh, Genetic Stock Center that is... Uh, one amazing place because they breed all the species of one fish genus, you know, that the biological um, species or whatever we, we want to define, they are like divided in, in different uh, categories. No, we can talk about families, genus. So genus is one of them. And there are 26 species in, in this um, in these species. And I'm measuring telomeres in all of them. Why? Well, because I want to study how telomere length evolve across all these fishes because they have a, uh, I mean, they, they they have a variation in their lifespan, uh, the time that they invest in reaching sexual maturity, their growth. Um, so I want to to study the coevolution co between all those traits and telomere length. That's super interesting. We'll definitely keep an eye for when that paper comes out. In several years. <laughs> several years, yeah, yeah, of course. Dr. Borraco, I have a, a game I play with all my guests that is using AI, an AI artist. I type something into the prompt of the AI, the art artificial intelligence artist, and I generate an, an image and I show it to my guests and I see if they can guess what, what did I type. Okay. Okay, so if you come around, please, yeah. have a look at this image. So I'm going to give you a clue. I typed a style, an artist, and something. Like, draw something in this style. Okay. Can you guess what it is that I typed? The style to me is Miro. Close enough. It's Picasso, actually. Or Picasso, okay. Yeah. yeah, okay. And can I see again you have there? Um, just to be sure, I I would say Telomers? Yeah, yeah? I said. I typed a Picasso painting of Telomeres, Telomeres shortening. I didn't know that you, that you can do that. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, amazing. It's amazing. I will upload it to, to Instagram <laughs> so Thanks. people can see. Yeah. This is probably the least radial activity, but I like to do it anyways. Mm -hmm. So, Dr. Burraco, do you have any hobbies outside academia? Yes, I mean, uh, I have many, like, like most of the people, uh, but the main one I will say that is music. Um, so, I play drums. Uh, I have been playing, like, well, now that we are getting older, during the last already 22 years. Wow. So I was playing with several bands, uh, mostly in Spain. Then in, in Glasgow, I was playing with, um, with the band of, of the department. And it was amazing. There were like big parties and I was the drummer of that band. What style of music did you play? Mostly rock, uh, but I also like blues. Um, I would like to play jazz. It's the the gender that I don't know how to. Well, I mean, I can survive somehow, but it's, I need to practice a bit more. I don't have a lot of time. That's pretty cool. I didn't know you were a proper drummer. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that I'm the best drummer, but because I learn by myself, um, would I would I know how to play? I mean, I don't I don't forget how to play even if I don't play in a long time. 
Do you have any advice for younger scientists or for people that are thinking of becoming a scientist? Yes, I mean, you have to you have to love. If you start in science, you have to love what you start doing because even if you love, at some point you will hate in the way that you need to work many hours. And the second is to to be surrounded by nice people. Sometimes I see some students that they are looking for big names, but it's very nice, and, and of course it's a, it's a good idea if they are nice people. So, yeah, you need both, because if not, I mean, this is like a marathon, and this is a very long way. You need to be happy and, and to really love what you do. Dr. Rakov, thank you so much for being part of Science Stories. Did you have a good time? Very good time. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Of course. Thank you so much for coming. Wow.